together, we believe another gulf is possible where we can survive and thrive without fear of each other, free of oppression, where we can live in balance with our natural resources, our land and our water, and still meet our energy needs. Where we can eat and live with better health and connection to each other and to the planet. Where we can take care of each other and have everyone feel honored, respected, and loved. It would take all of us believing there is a way to protect our people and our planet. And then working together to make that reality come true. Join us! Welcome everybody to our live broadcast of our new podcast series, We Got We, Not BP. Uh, Welcome, and I'm going to throw it to Monique to kick us off. Halito, hello, good afternoon. Um, I'm calling in from the banks of the lower Mississippi River Delta, where the water is flowing fast and high on its way towards the Gulf of Mexico. And before we got started um, in this conversation today, we really just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge all the waters, all the rivers, all the oceans, all the gulfs um, everywhere that connect us to each other. So um, if we just kind of take a couple of breaths together and, um, and then we'll get started. My name is Monique Verde. My pronouns are she, her, and my home is in Bulbuncha, a place where many tongues are spoken, also known as New Orleans, Louisiana. My name is Ramsey Sprague, uh, they, them, he, his. I live in Mobile, Alabama. I'm born in Dulac, Louisiana. Hello, this is Patricia Rubio. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and in Spanish, ella, ellas. And the place I call home is the Rio Grande Valley, uh, specifically the city I was born in, San Benito, here in Texas. Orale. This is Brian Parras. Uh, go by he, him, his. And I'm in Houston, Texas, born and raised. Um, and uh, family hails from, from all over the state of Texas. Glad to be here. Hi, my name is Sharon Lenezo Hong. I go by she, hers, and I call home, my place I call home is Pensacola, Florida. Hey everyone, my name is Becca Nahosa. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I come from Brownsville, Texas, which is part of the Rio Grande Valley. My name is Ann Whitehead. I'm calling out to you from Balbuncha, from here in New Orleans. Um, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Namaskar, everybody. My name is Joysha. I go by she, her, hers. And I call New Orleans home, but currently quarantined in Denver with my family. Hey, everyone. My name is Noel Didler. I call Jackson, Mississippi home. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi, everybody. My name is Sharif Whiteland. I, um, I'm from Rain, Louisiana. And uh, I also am in northern New Mexico. All right. Well, I want to first thank everyone uh, from the Another Gulf is Possible Collective, um, all of my land, air, and water protectors, but also artists, creatives, media makers, and, you know, just uh, incredible 
human beings who care about this place that we call the Gulf Coast. And I know there are many, many dozens more people that uh, I just want to lift up in, in honor of all of us, our elders, uh, and those who came before us that have, you know, guided us to this work and nurtured our, uh, our own development. Um, and, and with that, you know, I wanted to say a little bit about how this got started, um, this podcast, but also this collective and, you know, the work that has been focused around the Gulf Coast uh, for the last, you know, not 10 years, <laughs> not 15 years, um, but for much longer and, and our small role, you know, in that process. So many of us that are on this call today came together after some really significant moments that took place in the Gulf Coast. Um, I would say starting with Hurricane Katrina, uh, for sure, um, but today we're also commemorating the 10-year anniversary of the BP drilling disaster um, that took place 10 years ago. And the lives that were lost and the ecosystem and the animals and you know the very the very heart of our uh, own humanity uh, faith in government um, and also you know the beautiful things that came from that which is you know our own uh, connections responsibilities um, to each other that really developed you know continued to even in this moment right now so Many of us started with a, a group that came together um, called the Gulf Coast Fund. And I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, and it was a consortium of many, many organizations and community leaders that realized that we needed to work together as a region and, you know, with a collective voice to put a spotlight on all of the injustices, uh, but also the incredible wealth of work that has been happening here. Um, so that we can, you know, be present in national conversations um, and, and, you know, flex our own sovereignty uh, for what we would like to see happen here in the Gulf. And out of that came, you know, many, many different uh, entities. Uh, many of us are creatives and media makers. So one of those is Bridge the Gulf. Um, so you may recognize some of us from doing some reporting and really trying to understand, you know, this region ourselves and connect with, uh, you know, different communities from fishing communities to native communities, African-American communities, Cajun communities, Latino immigrant communities, you know, this incredible, beautiful space um, and share with each other, you know, our vision um, and all of our are things that uh, you know that we love about this place so you know in honor of all of that we wanted to commemorate this 10-year anniversary by reconnecting with some folks that uh, that we have met along the way and to continue to try and you know lift up their voice their needs their concerns and celebrate their accomplishments and uh, with that I'll hand it over uh, to Joisha to say a little bit more about uh, another Gulf is possible. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> thank you, Brian. Um, and thank you for your and your family's work for all these years. 
Um, so another gulf is possible. A little bit about us. We are currently a collective or collaborative of 10 individuals across the Gulf South from Brownsville, Texas to Pensacola, Florida, as you just heard. Um, we are all in different ways working for a just transition in our region. Um, we center women of color leadership. We center art and cultural work and all the different ways we can take direct action, particularly with the frame of just recovery given disaster after disaster that our region continues to face. Um, we try to find ways in um, supporting the communities that we live in and uh, particularly centering the folks who are being most marginalized and um, impacted by these continuing disasters. So today, you know, this is kind of our first run episode and we are going to bring in all the voices of our collective today and uh, future episodes will be focusing a little bit more on particular issues. Today we're just doing a commemoration of this 10-year observance um, by really bringing uh, the stories of how we got to this work. And so we're going to kick it off with Sheree, who is one of our co-founding members and um, radical, amazing person. And so Sheree, can you kick us off with your story on how your life's been impacted by the BP drilling disaster? Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Um, I have to say, for me, my activism really started around BP. Before that, I was pretty, you know, checked into my community and um, things like that. But mostly I was just being a mom, you know. And I ended up on a boat out there in the middle of the water and experienced the oil come in. And I tell you, it was like a... It was like, I always say it was like a horror movie, you know, where the, they had the blob, you know, that slowly overtakes you. That's what it was like. But we couldn't get uh, out of it very far. Pretty soon we came across a, a pelican that was in the water. And this pelican was significantly oiled. When we pulled it onto the deck of the ship, we were hoping to get it out to the Fort Jackson where they were cleaning the birds at that time. Well, we didn't make it and the bird passed away. So we idled down the boat and just kind of sat there together. And I was with this huge Cajun fisherman and his little boy and just grief hit us so hard. I'll, I'll never forget that, uh, the way it sounded out there. And there's a few things I'll never forget. I'll never forget the way it sounded out there when there was no life, when it was just completely silent uh you don't even recognize you can't even recognize it uh stepping and and i'll always remember you know being with those people on that day with that bird and coming home and really looking in the mirror and seeing myself you know what how have i contributed to this and how fragile things really are and i think that was really what helped set me on this path of not just activism, but trying to find out what my level of accountability is in all of this. And it's been 10 years of that, you know, from my perspective. If I had it to do over again, there's a good number of things that I'd do differently, but always I would have done it from with this idea of, of what exactly is it that I owe uh, and, and how can I, uh, you know, um, be accountable to what I use on this earth and what I'm taking from my grandchildren because we are we are just borrowing from our our kids you know and our grandkids you know and we really have to think about what that footprint looks like you know 
So I am thankful for having that opportunity to really see things close up, even though it broke my heart. And here it is 10 years later. And when I still think about it, I still get a little teary eyed sometimes because uh, it was just such a life changing moment for a lot of people. And, uh, and it was death to a lot of organisms too. So, uh, yeah, we've all been through thick and thin since then. Now I'll tell you what, it, one thing that BP did do that I'll always remember was it brought a great crew of people together uh, that now we've been through since BP to go through BP together. We've been through floods together. We've uh, helped each other during hurricanes. We've, we've set up food networks. We've set up, you know, so that organizing that happened during BP was lived far longer and I think I hopefully supported and, and uh, encouraged a lot more people uh, than we'll probably ever actually know. But I do know that from my heart that I've been able to, um, to really get to know great, amazing folks during all this, you know? So that's where I'm at with it. 10 years, it's a whole decade of my life. Uh, and I wouldn't change anything about it except to maybe make the disaster not happen, of course, but uh, it's been a hard road. It's, but it's been a good, it's been a good road, you know, to get to know everybody and everybody on this line and people beyond. Thanks, Trishmari. Thank you. Um, yeah, how the BP drilling disaster impacted me. Um, I, uh, I have this artifact. Um, it's an oyster shell that I'm sharing. Um, I think it's a, a, a really good symbol for a bunch of reasons. Um, but for me, uh, my father was an, um, was an oyster fisherman. And so uh, most of my family, uh, my home relatives are, are all fishermen working um, as shrimpers and, um, you know, also crabbers and oyster men as well and women. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think oysters, their role in the water as purifiers um, and they're full of protein. Um, they're like independent, but they live on these collective uh, reefs or they, they live on these beds and they create these reefs, which would create this a storm buffer um, that can protect inner harbors. So um, they're really amazing. And, um, you know, when BP happened, uh, friend Lenezo Hong, who's with us today and I were finishing um, a documentary called My Louisiana Love. And um, the disaster in the Gulf was really this kind of example of what we had been trying to, um, to, to say, which is that there's this cycle of environmental injustice and it's interconnected with so many layers of injustice that go all the way back really to colonialism. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, trying to, to tell the story about South Louisiana and all of the problems um, that it has in the Gulf South in general. Um, and then to have BP hit, it was just this like real um, moment, as Cherie was saying, where a lot of us were kind of activated to 
to rethink, um, you know, disaster as we had always been facing cycles of storms, but this was another kind of storm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think of this oyster reef because, um, or this oyster shell, because, you know, so many of the restored dollars that have come from um, the BP fines have been used to, to reseed these grounds. Um, so I, um, yeah, I think that, you know, the oysters teaching me how to, um, to, to, to strengthen our binds, to create uh, biodiversity and to, to strengthen what is natural here and to respect that there is this balance, um, that the planet has a natural intelligence um, around that we must um, realign ourselves with. And uh, so I think these moments of disaster, even COVID right now is teaching us that, um, that yeah, uh, nature is always going to be, be stronger than um, man's desire for greed. And so I think that, you know, as we see, oil is crashing right now um, and what that means. Uh, so, yeah, BP is still teaching me a lot. Um, Yeah, thank you, thank you, Monique. Um, it's uh, really, really interesting because uh, one of the first people I connected with um, recently, when I was thinking about the BP disaster, was uh, Byron Uncleade, who's a uh, oysterman in Plaquemines Parish, and I remember him just telling me, you know, it's like you, you can't replace the oyster beds that uh, were in place because they took decades to build, you know, just acres and acres and acres and acres of, uh, of reefs um, that are gone. So yeah, just uh, thanks for bringing that and sharing that with us. I have something that uh, actually I was helping with um, the same year, 2010, and it was, looking at another company actually and the impact that uh, it had had on the Amazon rainforest and <laughs> all over the globe actually. Um, but the, the company is Chevron and there was a gathering of impacted communities from all over the globe coming to Houston to participate in a uh, shareholder meeting um, uh, to be able to voice their concerns and to share with the shareholders and you know the public things that had happened in their home countries and their homelands and uh, so i have I have this report that was uh, put together and it's a, an alternative report um, to the annual report that the companies put together when they have their shareholder meetings. And oftentimes they talk about the economic impact, you know, the amount of money that they have made, um, then the number of, uh, the amount of oil they've, they've discovered and drilled and, you know, uh, extracted from the earth. And it's, it's meant, you know, to, to be a very uh, positive um, story, you know, from their point of view. Well, this one, this one is, a report that was put together by people who live on the fence line of these industries, whether it's extraction or you know uh, transmission through pipelines, or 
the refining process, you know, that turns oil and gas into different products or gasoline or fuel or whatever. Um, so this actually happened in May, you know, and we were planning for folks to come for many, many months. And what I learned was uh, just how, how many places have been impacted by uh, companies from Houston. And, and how devastating, you know, the environmental harms um, and the public health harms have been on the people and the animals, you know, and the, and the plants. Um, and, you know, in the midst of organizing all of that, this, this incredible disaster happens in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and I had not been witness to anything like that. Um, it's something that we had, you know, been concerned about for sure and, and worried about. Um, but a lot of people don't think about deep sea drilling because it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind, so far away in the Gulf. And, uh, and it really made me think about, you know, the, the extreme uh, lengths to which we have gone um, to prop up a system um, that, that hasn't really had a whole lot of accountability. You know, we, uh, we haven't really had to think about the harms um, up until recently, you know, and now they're in our face more than ever. So uh, I just want to uh, lift that up and all the people that have been fighting events like this all over the globe. Um, and, uh, and I'll pass it to our next uh, presenter. Thank you. Hey, all this, so, this, so this is Ramsey. Uh, and the object I have isn't directly related to 2010 and BP, but it's a jade dog that a, a Chinese restaurant owner, a Chinese American uh, who owns a Chinese restaurant, is a friend of mine in Dallas, uh, she gifted this to me, and we had gone down to New Orleans right after Katrina together. She's a pharmacist by trade, and so she was coming to help organize the uh, the only clinic that was open uh, right after uh, the, the floodwaters had subsided enough that a mosque could be used in Algiers to host the only open clinic in the city. Uh, common ground relief is what that eventually turned into. Uh, in 2010, I was living in Fort Worth and Texas and uh, the back and forth with family and Dulac and everything. Uh, I decided that, you know, I, 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 with enough time, I was able to arrange my schedule around June, around my birthday to take time off to go down to do relief work uh, again. And, uh, I wanted to get Haswalper and Hazmat training, which they were offering for free, uh, in order to do beach cleanup or, or you know, weather, oil recovery, whatever. Uh, and I went through the training. It was a week-long training. I got licensed, certified, got into the, the federal registry and everything, and they uh, wouldn't let me. <laughs> they said that they, uh, they, were, they weren't looking for people who were trying to volunteer that's what they told me 
all the people in my class were all uh, fisher people, shrimpers that had been using their boats in the Vessels of Opportunity program, but that program had just been canceled because of people who had been volunteering with the program showing how dangerous it was, how, how much uh, people were bringing home into their homes, oiled clothes, boots. There was no training offered to the people that were participating in the Vessels of Opportunity program, yet they were handling, directly handling oil uh, and oil products and oiled things uh, and making themselves and their families very ill. So that was the class I was in. And it was really shocking to me to hear their, you know, it was about 30, 40 of us. And just to hear their stories, because, you know, they had this, this, uh, this P2, this uh, public participation professional come in that was like mediating, uh, teaching the program. And he, he claimed, of course, that he had nothing to do with BP, nothing to do with the oil industry. Uh, and so, but, you know, he acted as the ear. He was always really interested to hear people's firsthand impressions. Uh, I imagine that these trainings were pretty well orchestrated by industry, uh, that these professionals were hired because they were culling information. Uh, but that's just what my gut was telling me at the time. Long story short, you know, I heard 30, 40 accounts of people that were not trained, that were told to go out and handle oil, that got themselves and their families sick. Uh, and that's what really, it was like a crucible for me. It, it really informed what I thought of as environmental injustice, what I thought of as, uh, you know, the type of uh, disparities that happen in relief work where disasters happened. Uh, these weren't the oil executives down getting their hands dirty and made their families sick. These were people that had been cut off from their livelihoods that had no other choice and were forced to deal with this uh, disaster that, you know, Tony Hayward said that he wanted to get back to his life afterwards, you know, during, uh, that was the then CEO of BP. So any, anyway, uh, just this Jade dog reminds me of how interconnected we all are. And uh, even those that are, you know, really far inland, if you're listening to this, you have a role to play in, in doing relief work and, uh, you can do it in ways that are that can be really helpful to, to the communities along the Gulf because uh, we're all in this together uh, and the price of oil will keep telling us that every single day marching forward so don't forget it thanks Ramsey thank you for sharing um, so you know my story I on April 20th 2010, I was actually in New Orleans, um, had was living in the Bay Area, and that morning I woke up and I decided, that was like my trip where I was gonna, I was figuring out if I was feeling called to New Orleans. This is my object as a, a mermaid. And I was born in Mobile, Alabama on the Gulf of Mexico and had been thinking about moving to New Orleans. I woke up that morning and uh, was like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm gonna figure out a way to pack my bags and, and go. Um, and then that afternoon, the, you know, kind of everything jazz fest, there was just a whisper about uh, oil disaster, oil rig exploded. And I remember at that time I was doing educational justice and uh, youth organizing arts education work with young people. 
was not into environmental uh, work. Um, honestly considered that to be kind of white people stuff that wasn't relevant to me. I mean, I'm being really, that, that wasn't where my mind was at. Um, but once, the, when the disaster happened and then I was moving, I packed up my bags and moved in July and the oil was still flowing. Um, and I remember at, that was, I was like, oh, th this is bad. You know, this is really bad. And uh, long story short from there is I somehow ended up coordinating this coalition called the Gulf Future Coalition that led me to meet a lot of these amazing people and really uh, through my work in collaborating with the Cry One project, which was a performance experience that Monique was a, a key part of, um, as well as our partners at Mondo Bizarro and Artspot, that was kind of the emotional connection I finally really got in a really deep way how this extraction of the land for its natural resources was deeply related and connected to the extraction of labor of you know taking of people taking of land that our ancestors um, have been dealing with and how intimately connected it is to the fossil fuel kind of corporate criminals and so um, you know, and once I think the veil is lifted and you see that, you can never go back to, to just being a regular person um, going on their way uh, and not caring about the peril of the planet. So that's kind of my story. And I'm going to pass it to Sharon. And y'all see I'm also trying to do the video thing. So let me find Sharon. Thank you, Joisha sharing and everyone else. Um, so I guess my story is connected to Monique's. Um, I was in, we thought we were in post-production of My Louisiana Love, a documentary film, and really it just kind of threw us back into going, uh, filming and writing and just really, um, which was, which was a good challenge because I felt like the, it was the story uh, it brought so much more proof to the story we were already telling. And, um, it's, and just trying to tackle the complexities of the relationship of the people, the Homa and a lot of Southeast Louisiana and people around the Gulf coast that rely on the oil and gas industry for their livelihoods. And, um, so that, really forced us to just put it out there and to to confront it and then also to confront our own like the wise words that Cherie was saying in the beginning like what are our what is our relationship with this problem and with this with the, the addiction to the fossil fuel industry that we have and how are we being held accountable and what do we need to what choices can we make to um, to have a just transition and that was the first kind of um, uh, introduction to that whole idea of just transition and trying to find the, uh, the, you know, the other choices that we do have that we're just not, um, not taking right now, I guess. And um, so it was um, also uh, per, on a personal note, it was my hometown, Pensacola, that I knew the, the, 
the uh, oil was going to wash ashore eventually. And so uh, my thing is uh, I immediately wanted to go out there and grab some of the sand that um, is from Pensacola Beach because um, sand's so special. It's weather and eroded quartz from the Appalachian Mountains. And it's really, it feels really clean when you're out there. You have the Emerald Coast waters and then the white crystal sand. And it's just, I mean, when you walk on it, it's like squeaky clean. It, it squeaks when you walk on it. So it's really amazing. So I, um, I went there and grabbed some sand from the beach. And that was the thing that I chose to share. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, uh, it still continues to to um, teach us and, and we're still trying to figure out how to move towards the just transition. So, thank you. Hey y'all, uh, this is Becca Inahasa again. Um, I'm an organizer, uh, I live in Brownsville, Texas, which is part of the Rio Grande Valley. And, um, this is a community I was born and raised, so were my parents. I'm from many generations from the Rio Grande Valley. And for folks who aren't familiar uh, with where we're located, um, we're on the edge of the Gulf Coast, where we are where the Rio Grande River um, meets the Gulf of Mexico, right on the US-Mexico border. And not many people have the opportunity um, to drive to the mouth of the river. Uh, I have once in my life, and it's one of the most magical places. Um, you have to cross a border checkpoint, even though you're still in the U.S., and then you have to drive down the beach um, for several miles, and there you'll find the mouth of the Rio Grande River um, flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. And right on the other side of the banks, you can see people in Mexico fishing and having a party and having a good time and swimming back and forth and it's really magical and it's you can wave and talk to each other and if you're ever down here i'll take you if you have four by four and then uh, after experiencing that beautiful site you're forced to go back through a border checkpoint where they question you so um, the Rio Grande Valley is so far south that we weren't directly impacted by the BP oil disaster We've been facing a lot of other types of disasters, waves of them, like family separations, um, border injustice, border fascism. Um, and one of the big fights that I'm a part of is resisting uh, LNG fracked gas export terminals with my community and with the Garisocomacrudo tribe of Texas, which are the original people of the region. Um, and that's sort of our first big wave of fossil fuel industry uh, coming in. So for me, the BP oil disaster is, is a, an important marker. It's an, another, another type of disaster that we could face with this new build out. Um, and, and today I, I was remembering you know, the BP oil disaster, what I saw on TV 10 years ago when I was 19 years old, being impacted by that. And so thinking about that, I got in my car and I drove down to the port of Brownsville and I just drove all along the 17 mile ship channel because that's where all this fossil fuel development is proposed. And there, there's a, a business called Keppel Amphils and they scrap and store 
um, offshore marine equipment. And so they had a huge offshore drilling pad right there this morning, right next to the shrimp basin. And they're scrapping that. And I remember just thinking like, this is it. This is what that looks like. Um, and just feeling, yeah, feeling really, feeling really emotional um, seeing that. And it was also really foggy, so it made it look really sinister. Um, and um, a reporter contacted me on Friday and told me that the, the workers at this business, where they scrap and store and rebuild these offshore um, drilling pads, the workers were told that they didn't have to come in originally because of COVID-19. And then last week, uh, they got a call that they all had to come back and work um, because they're considered an essential business now. And they have to come and work on these offshore drilling equipment. They have to come build a new LNG fracked gas tanker ship. Um, so he's doing an investigative piece and I'm also looking around, but that's sort of just the merging of all these different different layers of things that are still going on and still happening. Um, so I don't have anything to show you, but I wanted to share that personal story I had this morning, that feeling of emotion, just seeing that offshore drilling pad. So thank you so much for hearing me. Um, I'm gonna pass it now to Judith. Um, I guess I just wanna show you the sunset. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the photos I took uh, going out to Point de Chan. Actually, Monique, this is your territory and your home. Um, and I was very grateful to be able to have that uh, experience and share your home uh, with you. I, sorry, I'm supposed to say my name, right? My name is Yudit Nieto. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I grew up in the Manchester community, which is in the east end of Houston, surrounded by industrial development, industrial uh, and chemical plants, um, a lot of refineries. So the BP oil disaster to us was just already normalized. You know, I was uh, a young kid growing up with constant explosions and constant threats to our health. Um, and after 9-11, being a kid um, in middle school, getting sent back home right after you hear on the news that possibly Houston might be hit next, you know, you kind of don't, you just kind of don't get over that and you always fear that something is going to um, just catch on fire and you won't be able to make it out of there. So a lot of those things get normalized and, and really that's what fueled uh, a lot of my frustrations and, and, and the fire, you know, to organize around um, with youth and trying to also engage them and activate them to be more socially engaged in their communities. Uh, Manchester is, is one of the worst communities to grow up in because of the high levels of pollution that a lot of these kids grow up with and so you know when the BP oil disaster happened it was just one more thing that was just happening it didn't really um, impact me right then and there um, I think the impact came a couple years later uh, when I or a few years later when I started organizing with Tejas and alongside Brian um, and 
I was actually able to go to Biloxi to one of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council meetings where a lot of the fishermen that were impacted by the BPO disaster were there sharing their stories. And I remember being there until all morning, all day and all night until like a little over 1 a.m. because there were so many stories. And I don't know how I, I managed to stay awake, but it was just so impactful to hear their stories and, and share their heartbreak with everyone. And, and you know, it, it really set um, a precedent for me to, to be more engaged and involved. And, and it gave me a sense of, of duty also to do my part back home uh, and share these stories with the young people that I was working with and even my community to help them understand how they were part of a bigger picture. Uh, because when you're in it, you know, you don't really see this, you don't smell it, you don't sense it in the same way. Um, and so it was very challenging for me emotionally and spiritually to to go back home to a place that was really dangerous for me and my family. Um, but then also being able to uh, to be on a platform to be able to to share those stories, you know, and then create our own stories of of what we want these environments and ecosystems to look like. Um, and that's how I met Cherie. That's how I met Joisha and all of the great folks on this panel, you know, that um, have their own piece of the puzzle and in, into this bigger story of not just resiliency, but um, wanting to build a new, a new gulf, another gulf, you know, or a new home, um, a new way of building community and, and, and building um, solidarity networks so that we can not just share our stories and heartbreak, but also heal from them and, and, and share space and share our homes with each other and our culture. And I think that, you know, I also wear this shirt because it's a testament to the ways that we want to, um, that we want to share space with one another and the way that we want to build with each other. So I'm just really grateful to be able to um, share that piece. And I don't have too much to share, but my story, and I hope that that was um, more than enough. Thanks, Judith. And we're gonna, if your video, um, if, if it's hard, we can turn it off, but for now, let's see how it goes. Thanks for sharing that, Judith. That was beautiful. Uh, I wanted to share this with everybody. It's a photo or it's a painting of a, uh, a crawfish. Um, and uh, it's by a local artist named Martin Welch. And, and we were asked to bring something here and share something. And so, um, you know, I moved here in 2010, just uh, right before the disaster happened here. And um, it was crawfish season. And um, first time my kids and I were all we're all Lakotas from South Dakota and it was the first time that we'd ever had crawfish and so of course we were just hooked crawfish all the time and then and then um pretty soon you know this disaster happened and I remember um being able to bear witness to the effects of of that on the cultures of here in New Orleans and also indigenous um the indigenous folks who are um, on the front lines of climate change here in South Louisiana. And so um, I remember uh, one day we had like this 
oyster festival because everything's a festival in New Orleans. So it was like we had this oyster fest with our, our new friend, John Boutte. He's a local singer and he's just, you know, he's a beautiful person. And he came and we, he, he showed up with two big sacks of oysters because it was like almost this lamenting of like, these are the last fresh oysters we're ever going to have, you know? And so, um, so he taught my kids how to shuck oysters and we enjoyed so many oysters that day. I just, we, we loved it. And, and soon I, um, folks are folks from the Arctic came down, um, that had survived the oil spill up in their, in their territories and, and indigenous folks came down and, uh, I joined them to out in the communities, the indigenous communities here. Um, we were able to go to um, Isle de Jean Charles, the Biloxi Chitimacha folks. And um, I remember, you know, we, we went out to, we went out to that, to their island, to the, what's well, kind of an island now. And, and they've been, they've been, uh, those are folks that are, like I said, on the front lines of climate change and had to be relocated at this point. And so it doesn't even hardly exist anymore, their homelands. And so I remember have, we were at a meeting that evening and local fishermen came and were showing us photos that they had just taken that afternoon of the oil coming up onto the boats, up to the side of the boats. and. And you know, they were just so, it was emotional. It was really a hard day. So then we ended up going to Grand Bayou and visiting the indigenous communities out there. And it was the first time we were able to see, you know, kids, it's a whole nother lifestyle, you know, and it was beautiful that they introduced us and welcomed us into their homes out there. And, and they greeted us and on boats and we took canoes and boats out to their, to their homes. So they live on the water. And so my kids were able to experience that and also just see the effects on, people at their own age, the kids, you know, and, and uh, so those are powerful, those are powerful um, moments of witnessing and bearing witness to that. And so what brings me here today from, from Bayou Bridge, oh, from, from BP to, to Energy Transfer Partners, you know, there's a, a connection there in this oil and gas industry. It's so rampant here in, in South Louisiana and, um, we all know about what happened up in North Dakota and, and it has a direct impact here in South Louisiana. Um, so I ended up, you know, becoming, staying really active as an organizer down here. Um, and, you know, met Cherie and the rest is history about the direct action resistance that we helped to hold down with so many brave people out in the swamp. And, and now here we are in COVID-19 and, and what we're seeing here is, um, in, in Louisiana, well, in New Orleans, you know, being come a part of the mutual aid efforts here and, and doing some solidarity medicine making, but also like what Becca just talked about, you know, the oil and gas industry is, cons they're considering that still as a critical infrastructure. And so while our, while our, while our, um, our industry workers here, our, our uh, hotel and our, um, our, uh, Folks, you know, just the whole culture here in New Orleans, um, from the entertainment folks and, and folks who are hospitality workers out of work right now and really feeling the effects of this right now. Um, and our, our medical folks uh, are on the front lines fighting this, fighting this uh, virus. They don't even have access to the PPE gear, but what we're finding out is that those are being really taken out to and uh, to support the oil and gas industry folks and pipeliners and so there's a lot of injustices still going on in this regard but we're all here together and i'm really grateful to be a part of this collaborative and um so that's a little bit about my story okay thank you
Thanks, Dan. Hey everyone, Nawab Jidla. I'm an immigrant from Guntur, South India, which sits between the River Krishna and the Bay of Bengal. In my hands are seeds from my hometown that my mother brought for me and my friends as a way to connect my homes and relationships in the deep south to the global south. I moved to Jackson, Mississippi in 2005, a few days before Katrina and was immediately impacted by Katrina in a way that allowed me to witness its impact on indigenous black and brown communities in Jackson. Those experiences, along with witnessing impacts of disasters on my Dalit Bahujan Adivasi people in Guntur, allowed me to deepen my analysis of power and to be a mindful ally, learning to be a mindful ally in my professional life as a college instructor, facilitating liberation through learning, and as an immigrant making home through the various movement, cultural policy, and advocacy spaces I'm allowed to be part of. Of late, also as a resource generator, directly connecting grassroots individuals and communities to responsive and accountable philanthropy. I'm grateful for the students at Jackson State University, their families, the civil rights mentors, community elders, and circles of cultural workers and artists in Jackson, the Gulf South, and Global South, with whom I'm able to center racial equity, economic justice, environmental justice, food sovereignty, healthy communities, labor rights as human rights and ethical leadership. The truths and legacies of people and places, sacred relationships and relational spaces of love and liberation such as another Gulf is possible, keep me grounded in being a steward of system change. And that's my story. Thank you, Noel. All right, and we got Patty. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excuse the computer lag. I uh, I'm using the sun to help me. Hopefully, put some put some light. My room is very dark. But um, thank you everyone for sharing. Um, I live in the same region as uh, Becca does. I'm about thirty miles west of her town right now. I'm living, or staying shelter in place with my parents here in a Harlingen. Um, and it's really incredible to be joining such a, an amazing group of people. Ever since I was a child, I, I knew I always wanted to do something that was environmental. I just never knew how it was gonna happen, when, if, where. You know, I always thought like, oh, I'm a poor brown kid, you know, living in a place where everybody says that, you know, Oh, they're just a bunch of dumb brown people. They're, they don't do anything, or they're just field workers, or they don't count. And here I am realizing like, they were wrong and I was right. I do count, I do matter, and I'm gonna make an impact. And as an environmental educator, working at different nature centers, um, that's where my passion is. Hearing all these stories, it's very, it's very hard because I was not directly impacted, and when I did hear about it, it was my my birthday, because my birthday is April 22nd, and it was very strange to see the news, and it made me feel really bad, because I wasn't there to do anything about it, and also, um, 
it's just very painful because I wasn't doing that work. I was working with the deaf and hard of hearing community. But now here I find myself um, doing environmental education and also environmental work. Um, and I'm wearing a, a shirt right here. It's one of my bird shirts. And we were asked to bring something. So I have a t-shirt. I don't know if you can see that right there. A nice, well-worn, kind of jewel-toned aqua and all the different groups that are a part of it. And this happens every year. And we, we sit in a circle that's like 11 feet, you know, and we count as many birds as possible. But that's not uh, exactly what I'm, I want to talk about. It's just that's what we get for that shirt. But we were allowed to wear shirts uh, from, from different things that we did at work. And since I worked with kiddos, we were always going into the man-made pond. So there was mud. We would teach them water testing. We did take them on these hikes around, you know, all of the acreage that we had. Because I worked at one of nine uh, world birding centers. And the bird that's on that had gone down in population. And I had to tell the kids about that. And when they ask why, I talk about various reasons. And my focus was wetland ecology. So there were times where I brought up the BP oil spill actually often. And they would always ask me, but why miss, why, did that, why does that happen? And I have to somehow tell them the truth, but yet leave some sort of hope. And I found that to be very challenging. But at the same time, I felt that it was part of what creator put in me to be able to communicate with these kids, to let them know like, hey, that was something very tragic, but guess what? You can prevent that. Use your voice. Uh, learn your birds, learn about the history so it doesn't happen again. And um, so for me, when I think about the BP spills, like, no, it didn't affect us, but yet I teach them about all the coast, all about wetlands anywhere. And I talk about the hundreds of thousands of species that dropped in population, the tens of thousands of uh, sea turtles because we also have at South Padre Island Sea Turtle Rescue Inc. And so we have so much here that we're able to connect with that. And so for two years seeing hundreds and thousands of kids and all the different functions, you know, it was my responsibility to convey the truth. And I, I, I'm trying to fight back the tears, but you know, it's just right now I, I see out the window people are driving, they have masks. I'm like, and then here we find ourselves with, with COVID. This is nuts, you know? And like Monique says, nature will always be right there while we're still struggling down here. But when I think about that BP spill, I think about all the wildlife and it breaks my heart because I'm a, I'm a nature nerd, I'm a bird nerd, I love butterflies and I love wetlands. Uh, wetlands are some of my favorite things. And so 
you know, it's something really intense. But I think as long as we're working together and we're sharing our stories and we're being positive, I think we can keep this stuff uh, from happening again and keep empowering our youth. And thank you so much for hearing me. I didn't realize I was going to get so emotional. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Um, so just we we are at the hour. We're going to go a little bit over our, our allotted original hour just uh, to make sure we can do things in a good way. So Cherie, want to reflect back a little bit from the start till now? Yeah, I was looking and see if there's any questions. And it looks there is, like there is, a, there is a question and we wanted to give you space since you started us off to if you have any any reflection from hearing all 10 of us speak and then we could I think there's one question one or two questions okay well um yeah that was a fine collection of um anecdotes good stories and about this connection and I think the thing that brings it all together is that all of those stories are about connection, connection to the land, to the water, to each other, um, and how this one moment in time, which unfortunately took 11 lives to, and to billions of others, um, how that brought us not just together, but it connected us in some way, whether we knew, each, knew it or not <laughs> at the time, you know? So, uh yeah i hold those all that close to my heart because i was thinking as i was listening i was thinking oh i was doing this at that time and then i was thinking oh i remember that i remember that you know i was doing this you know so um so it's important i think beautiful thank you everyone who spoke um and yeah we have we do have a few questions Ooh, I like this one. What's the vision for another Gulf and how do we get there? I was proud. I'm proud to say I was a founder of another Gulf and um, I've had to move. So I'm in a different place right now. But um, the vision in, of another Gulf, I think, Joyisha, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Um, I can. I mean, I think. Uh I think for us, the idea is it's a almost double entendre of a, not all it is, you know, that there's another Gulf is possible in terms of our ecosystem and being in balance and respect with mother nature as well as each other. Um, and also another Gulf is possible. Like I think the idea of, um, and we touched on this a little bit, but um, the ongoing nature of these disasters and how the stress and tension within the movement with people has created a lot of division. And so I think being and recognizing that another gulf is possible, but also another gulf that tears us apart is possible. And that's the kind of disaster capitalism and colonialism's way to keep us controlled is to divide us. So I think that's part of our hope is through art, culture, and direct action that we can build that other way of being with each other. And being with the planet. But I would love to hear someone else too. If anyone else wants to 
chime in? Yeah, I can, I can add to it. Um, I, I just, I'm just seeing so many things happening um, here in New Orleans where like folks are coming together and, you know, the way that I'm envisioning too, or the way that some folks are envisioning another golf being possible is because of this, this new wave of migration of people from South America, from Mexico, um, from other parts of the world coming here um, after Katrina to work and then not, a, not being able to, to go back home and not being able to go anywhere else but to make this their home and in doing so they're also creating a new um, a new movement of people um, new networks of support that I feel that you know we're kind of like that jellyfish of like us expanding and you know uh, connecting through our struggles and our our shared migration and survival stories of you know needing to leave our homes because of being unsafe you know and and even though, Cherie, you say you're not here anymore, like you're still here because of the work that you've done and, and the way that you continue to inspire folks to continue that work and that legacy. So I feel like, you know, you never really left in, in a sense. Um, and, and that goes to a lot of people who are having to migrate and leave. Um, I think what counts is like the seeds of consciousness or like literal seeds that we leave behind that people are continuing to take care of and uh and nurture um and i and yeah i mean i think that that's kind of how we're envisioning another gulf being possible is is connecting to other folks who might not have been uh directly impacted by all of these issues that we're talking about but that continue to be impacted by a lot of the policies a lot of the things that manifested because of these issues you know and and um and yeah i i think that the visioning will keep transforming and and manifesting in different ways and i think that we have a, a good opportunity right now to create and transform what we want and just to add i think that you know what what we all recognize is that um, if we can start to have real just transitions here, if we can have real solutions for people to be able to to survive in a way that um, they're not just getting by and not living under this kind of colonial plantation mentality, um, that if we can if we can start to model that here, then it can happen everywhere. Um, and as we're, you know, in the red zone, I keep saying here in South Louisiana, we're losing land at one of the fastest rates on the planet. Um, we have high rates of poverty, uh, you know, terrible health care. Like this is, a, of course, an example that that is like rippling across the Gulf South from Texas to Florida, too. I mean, Florida's in a little better shape. But um, I think that, you know, these are our vision is to really start to put forward, um, you know, like solutions for how we can um, liberate ourselves from from living under these oppressive systems. And I think that a big part of that, which I got kind of lost with my oyster shell, um, but it's food sovereignty, right? Like if you have food security, you have a sense of sovereignty. Um, but in these parts of the world, you know, we're also faced with like the fact that the air that we breathe is um, toxic, which is why COVID rates are, death rates are higher here, right? So all of these correlations that we're trying to really connect, um, it's not just in isolation of like the environment, but, um, but institutionalized 
um, systems of oppression. Anybody else want to chime in on that question? Just uh, quickly, um, and I was thinking of what Judith said about Cherie, and I was thinking the same thing about you, Judith. You're still in Manchester, um, and uh, you know, and you planted a lot of seeds there, and they're growing, and. Uh, you know, it is really nice for all of us to think about this place as one place, one shared place. Um, and that's part of the vision, right, of another Gulf. Um, for me specifically, I think that the way that the oil and gas industry has a hold on um, our states and our psyche and our culture, particularly Louisiana and Texas, um, that's one thing that I try to challenge and that I think of when I think of another Gulf. Um, a, a gulf without oil and gas. What does that look like? Um, how can we get there? And uh, and can we get there? You know, those are those are the things that uh, I see as an important part of of my work, uh, particularly because of where I'm at in Houston. You know, where the fossil fuel industry is such a a behemoth. Um, and, and yet, you know, also a, an incredible place of resistance and ingenuity and uh, imagination. So just wanted to add that. Thanks. And appreciate all the questions coming in and the comments. Continue to, to add them in the chat, please. Yeah. Um, Sheree, do you want to pick? We have a few questions. We could probably get to one or two of them. We're a little over time, but they're good questions. Hmm. Yeah, one uh, that I liked here was what um, what has been done since BP to prevent it from happening again? And I think that is an important question because little to nothing. <laughs> you know, what was there has been rolled back by this administration. Does anyone else want to take on that? Maybe with a little more. I mean, I would, I would love to hear about the, the incredible efforts that were taken a few years back uh, at one of the lease sales. Um, that's definitely oh. worth mentioning. It's not for <laughs> lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, we're also why the they're online, critical. right? the critical infrastructure bills too. Yeah, the critical infrastructure bills, which we're actually fighting because of uh, the Bayou Bridge pipeline right now, but they're harming movements because oil products are seen as critical infrastructure. How do you see us fighting back? Uh, well, right now we actually have uh, two challenges, one on the federal level, one on the state level for those critical infrastructure bills. And what that is, is uh, they're proclaiming certain parts like pipelines or whatever as critical infrastructure. And so that when people go there they to protest, they end up getting felonies. We have, I have two myself, and we have, uh, let's see, I think 14 people charged with 16 or 17 felonies right now. So that's one way we're fighting is in the courts. And uh, the other way, you know, is I still see people even in these places where um, the, I think there's, oh, I can't remember the number of states now that there are that have them. I know three just passed during this COVID stuff. So, um, but um, people are challenging that and people are still fighting. They're still going out on the line. And I know a good number of people who have uh, felonies now. So or felony charges, I guess I should say, because nothing's been picked up. But 
Um, yeah, so we're fighting it in the courts and people are continuing to put their life on the line out there. And there's been no uh, safe, actually I think the safety regulations have been deregulated even further in terms of the 11 people who lost their lives. Um, definitely yeah. not honoring their lives. Yeah, and that's onshore and offshore, right? Like we're seeing more accidents. Um, we're seeing more expansion that's happening here along the Gulf South. And that was like people doubling down or industries doubling down on, on single-use plastics. Um, but that offshore safety rulings, I mean, you know, that was one of the first things that the Trump administration um, rolled back. So um, I would say we're in a darker, more dangerous time than ever, unfortunately, when it comes to, to that. Yeah, and I mean, there's a question here, I'm, I'm not going to read it exactly, but, you know, given this moment where, where we are, like, gas is negative dollars now, right? Oil is like, oil per gallon. Um, how is that going to impact and what is that going to mean? I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts on that given today's news? I mean, I, I, uh, I, I'll take this briefly and, you know, hope others can chime in too. Um, I, I think it's just one of those reminders that we can't, we can't assume that uh, oil and gas is something that will be, that will make sense, you know, uh, forever. And that, you know, in a blink of an eye, our whole world can change and has changed many times in our lifetime. Um, so for folks to question, you know, the, when we say another Gulf is possible or that we need a just transition um, and that there, there are ways to live in this world on this planet, absent fossil fuels that, uh, that, you know, it might not even be our choice. Nature might, force that upon us and it's a question worth asking yourself preparing for and planning for you know certainly we've had an abundance of of uh of wealth and and things you know as a result luxuries you know uh from oil and gas but but those things you know we have found um in large part have done a lot of harm and that harm is coming back to us right now. Um, and it's, it's uh, impacted the entire planet's uh, systems. So, you know, I would say that because of that, we have, we have to imagine a world without this or, uh, or, or we're going to be in a lot of trouble. You know, life will be hard for you. Um, and, and fortunately for some of us, we have started that journey um, already, you know, many years back. And, and it's helped us prepare for a moment like this. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I would have to share with that. Um, and, and it hurts. I know a lot of folks, you know, that will financially um, be ruined by this. And, and I have great compassion and sympathy for families and people. You know, they're real people. They're still people. Um, and, and I would not wish any harm upon anyone um, but that is why we do our work. And that is why, you know, we are so passionate about this um, because all of us, all of us on this panel, and I think a lot of us outside of this panel that do this work care about people fundamentally. Um, and we're trying to, you know, prevent harm, prevent, prevent um, death, 
and, and prevent trauma, you know, but these are things that take collective action. So, uh, you know, we are helping educate and learn ourselves and share that information and learn from others as well. I just want to, I want to add, this is Ramsey, uh, that we're, you know, th this isn't the COVID response and recovery from COVID, how all this looks like in the long run. I mean, part of the themes that we haven't really, we haven't completely touched on, you know, what, what is a just recovery and how are we continuing to respond from disaster to disaster? We've gone through this so many times we have to be pushing for a people bailout, you know, bail out the people uh, and to just raise holy hell for what we know will happen. We know that Congress is gonna push for a bailout for the industry. They're gonna wanna buy out all the fracking industry, which was going under anyway. This pushed it over an edge that it had set itself up upon. Uh, decarbonization uh, and renewables aside, the industry was completely in debt anyway. There, it's unsustainable, and we can't allow ourselves to be victimized over and over and over again for a handful of people that are profiting at the the the, the top of this pyramid scheme. Uh, we just have to stay focused on what the recovery looks like and holding it accountable and putting in mechanisms that will prevent the type of corruption that we know is going to be proposed as genius. Great. Any last words from anyone in our collaborative? Sheree, do you have any last words for us? Yeah, I guess I would just say everyone for getting on and listening. And um, thank you to all the panelists for, for being on this really important uh, 10 years. is crazy to me that 10 years has gone by like that and it feels like sometimes we just go from catastrophe to catastrophe to catastrophe living in the gulf unfortunately um and i just feel so blessed to be, know the people i know and be able to work together in a way that feels right for my being um in in supporting humanity as we go through this change hopefully this this shift that we're all pulling for and hoping for so um it's hurtful to look back sometimes i know for some of our people there were a lot of people who were poisoned who got sick thanks to dispersants and other things that were there there were um you know not just the original 11 that died but there were a good number of people that we've lost since then my my friend said you know there's there's a lot more graves in the gulf because of bp and that's true um so it hurts to look back but let's let's remind ourselves as we're doing that that all of those people are still there that all of our ancestors are with us and pulling for us and pushing for us and and that uh they're lifting us uh every day in 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 this fight and many other struggles so that we can um do the same when it's our turn for the next generation so uh everybody be good to yourself if you've been through this this is be good to yourself for the next few days and and uh i know these anniversaries quote unquote these memorials are hard for people and uh just know that uh you're not alone reach out if you need help that's pretty much it
And just real quick before folks jump off, we do want to remind you this is just our first episode. We plan on having much more and we'll go into that. So don't leave just yet. <laughs> okay, we'll go into it. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Cherie, for being our special guest uh, for episode one. And we hope to have you back. Uh, there are some topics that I think uh, would be really powerful if you help lead them um, with all the work that you did uh, immediately after uh, the, the BP drilling disaster. Um, but we want to go back first. So I'm going to tell you episode two, and then Joisha will tell you uh, the next episode, and we'll go on. Um, we plan on having these every two weeks. So two weeks from today will be our next show, and we're calling it 500, not 50 years of resistance, because we know that uh, most of America is celebrating 50 years um, since the inception of Earth Day. Uh, we've been celebrating Pachamama, Mother Earth, for a lot longer than 50 years, um, particularly here uh, in the Americas, but all over the world. And we want to lift that up. Um, and, and since, uh, you know, folks like to start with uh, um, the interaction of uh, the old world and the new world, we'll start there <laughs> and tell you about the incredible resistance that has happened, you know, for 500 years here. Joisha. Yeah, and then, you know, we're planning on covering land and water, food sovereignty in the Gulf South. Um, a majority of our collaborative is doing different things and we'll be talking to community members who are doing that work actively, um, as well as, and we've touched on this multiple times today, the public health impacts that continue from BP, particularly in the age of coronavirus. So we'll be diving deep into um, all of those continued impacts. Yeah, and, and for all the numbers folks, you know, a lot of people want to know where did all the money go? You know, it's like BP and federal government often like to throw out, well, we gave millions of dollars for restoration, you know, blah, 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 blah. Where did it actually go? Who actually um, has that money now? How's it being spent? And, uh, you know, what's, what's left of it? Um, so we'll, we'll dive into that with some special guests, um, look at maybe lawsuits, the property damage settlements, um, and the restoration dollars, and so on. And uh, after that, another episode focused specifically on corporate and community accountability in the time of COVID. Um, so, you know, looking at the responsibilities and how companies have learned, if they've learned <laughs> anything since BP. Um, one thing in the questions that we saw were related to the mask, because um, we know that, uh, you know, during the cleanup, workers weren't allowed to wear a mask, you know, something we've seen even today. Um, so we'll look at all sorts of different uh, ways of addressing accountability. Um, and the last show I'll leave for Joisha to explain. Yeah, and the last episode we currently have planned for this series will be around responsible and responsive philanthropy, um, specifically centering the Gulf South, the Deep South, as a place where I believe it's $41 per, per capita 
uh, in the South is spent by philanthropy compared to the national average of $800 per person. Wow. So, or $890, something like that. So we'll be kind of talking and hold, holding philanthropy accountable towards uh, what they should be doing in this moment as well in response to BP's negligence. Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll, we'll keep talking <laughs> after that. That's what we have lined up so far. Um, we really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you'll be back in two weeks. Uh, share this with your friends, colleagues, and family. Uh, we will have this up online so that uh, it can be viewed again. And yeah, paz y dignidad.